Our scripture today comes from the book of Genesis, so very early in the Bible, uh, chapter 9, verses 8 to 17, and it can be found on page 13 in your pre-Bibles. Or, yeah. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there a flood destroy the earth. And God said, This is the covenant, sign of the covenant I am making between me and you, and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears, appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all life on the earth. At this point in the church calendar, we have just entered into the season of Lent. This is the season that includes the 40 days right before Easter. Kind of like Advent is for Christmas, it's the time that we spend preparing ourselves spiritually to be able to say by Easter that we have risen with Christ and now are living a new kind of life. For us brethren, it's especially important as we are looking forward to love feast and we make sure that there is nothing standing between us and God and between us and one another and that we can have full communion with one another. It's an important, if kind of dark, time of the church year. It celebrates the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted. And it's for us a lot like those 40 days were for Jesus. We promise a new level of commitment for God, and so that means that sometimes we go without certain luxuries, and all of this can lead us into temptation, but also to more dependence on God. Now, there are three main themes that you'll hear a lot about during Lent, and they're present in this passage as well. The first is that God takes sin seriously. The second is that God is merciful and compassionate. And the third is that you should repent and change your life. So first, God takes sin seriously. Everything that takes place in this chapter happens just after God sends a flood to destroy the earth. God had created a good world by triumphing over chaos. He was rightfully king over creation. And only the presence and reign of God could make this world function. But humans rebelled against their creator and caused the world to fall into disrepair. A holy God could not be present in such unrighteousness, so he withdrew his presence. In God's absence, all of the world set to work destroying itself, spreading violence, injustice, and degeneration everywhere. The world was created good, but God could do could not but without it, God without God it could do nothing but vandalize and destroy itself. God loves this world, so this caused him to be angry and wrathful. And so he did the only thing that could salvage this world, which was basically to start over and create the world anew. And you might wonder why, whether it's really proper that God should be angry or wrathful. Can he really worship a God who reacts so violently against sin? 
Why not just have a God that's all loving? The answer is that you cannot have an all loving God who does not judge or get angry at the presence of sin. Parents tend to be angry when their children misbehave. And in its purest form, that anger is good because it is motivated by love. The parent has a good and right vision for who their children could be. And when they act in ways that violate that vision, they get frustrated. They recognize that if the child continues misbehaving, it would cause them incredible harm. A child who's constantly trying to touch a hot stove shouldn't just be allowed to touch the hot stove because it's just what they want. The parent acts forcefully to stop that from happening. What it really means to love often means some, calling someone or warning someone, even forcefully, to change the behavior. And the same is true for God. And so in order for a good world to be maintained, God had to send the flood. Because God's vision for a world set right required him to start over. It was far more merciful to do that than to leave humanity to its own devices. It's far more merciful to avoid simply letting humans do whatever they want, enslaving themselves to this or that idol, live a life without God in it, and slowly destroy themselves more and more forever. God loves his creation, and that required him to intervene. The only place where God allows people all of their desires without intervening is hell. That's the place where God is not present, allowing people to destroy themselves for eternity. When we ask for a loving God, we must be calling for the kind of God who acts within history to save the world from sin. God is not a sleepy and uninterested grandpa who, lets, who says, let the children play, even when they destroy themselves. No, God's perfect and wonderful love is an all-consuming fire. He doesn't simply say, just find a way to be happy in your life without me. Because at his right hand is infinite joy, and without him is eternal darkness. There is no being happy without God. Because all the possible happiness in the world only exists because God is there in some sense or another. Saying, just be happy in your own way, whether I'm there or not, is not loving at all. It would show that God doesn't even care about his children. God truly loves us. And that love means so much more than a drowsy and lazy wish that we would have good luck or something. God loves you yourself with the infinite passion that makes the love between a man and his wife look like child's play, not with the kind of love which is the most kind of care that we can muster for a random person halfway across the world. Of course we want a God who's angry at the presence of sin. Imagine being a victim of some horrific crime, and the perpetrator gets away with it, and God says, I hope the guy who robbed you finds a way to be happy in his own way. We want a God who establishes justice on earth, showing that evil is a farce, that cheaters never prosper, and that the righteous are rewarded. You cannot have a just earth without God's judgment. And so it seems to me that richer and more prosperous countries have a harder time with the judgment of God than poorer ones that constantly face injustice we might be able to shield ourselves from the true results of our deepest sins, while other countries feel the brunt of them. Our brethren friends in Nigeria who are raided and who lose their friends to kidnappers, all while their government sits and watches while giving silent approval, they have no issue with the wrath of God. Read the Psalms and you constantly see people calling out for God to bring vengeance on their enemies. God could not be merciful in their minds without acting on their behalf. Of course, many people have the opposite objection, that God simply allows evil to continue without it being answered. 
But you, of course, you notice that these two objections, that God doesn't take evil seriously enough and that God is too angry with sin, can't both stand at the same time. They completely contradict each other. You can't have a God who takes sin more seriously and less seriously at the same time. And so it's best to assume that God, who made the world and is far wiser than we are, knows what's best. But of course, if God judges humanity in his wrath, that means that we also could be objects of his wrath. When we talk about the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, which a lot of Old Testament passages talk about, we often call it something closer to respect for God. But it's very often a genuine fear. If you really recognize who God is and who you are, it's terrifying to be in his presence. It's true that now we can enter into God's presence through Christ, but don't let that fool you into thinking that you can just traipse up to God without recognizing that God is holy. Don't let that fool you into thinking that you never need to actually change your life to look more like God. Particularly as our Ash Wednesday scripture says, the fear of God should turn your focus outward to seeking love and justice for others, especially for those who can't take care of themselves. Because none of us can take care of ourselves when we're in the fearful presence of God. So how we treat the helpless among us may just be how we're treated when we're helpless before God. One of the slogans of the season of Lent for Christians for the last 2,000 years has been memento mori, which in Latin means remember your death or remember that you must die. Obviously, it's a very morbid thing to have to think about and not totally fun. But death is a reality for all of us, and it's something we all have to reckon with. Anytime you ignore a major part of reality, it leads to problems. If you ignore gravity, you're going to have problems when you try to walk off a bridge. The same thing is true for death. If you ignore death, which is such a significant part of life, you're going to run into problems. Recently, I thought about how memento mori means that there are, really are a limited number of things you can do with your life. You don't have unlimited time. And so there are certain things that are much more important to focus on than others. As a young man, I've often been under the impression that I can do practically anything. And there will always be more time. But remembering my death means I need to prioritize some things over others. There's only so many books I can read, only so many friendships I can maintain, only so many days I can go without prayer. Remembering that you must die means that you have to prioritize certain things. As odd as it sounds, it's helped me to rest more, not less. It's made me remember that since I will die, and I am not God, I am a frail human being who needs rest in order to function. In a culture that rarely recognizes the fact of our death, it's important that we may take serious steps to make sure that our death is in our minds during Lent. Remembering your death and remembering that you must die means that you recognize that there is only a limited amount of time to get your stuff together. I'm a recovering procrastinator, and I used to never get anything done unless the deadline was the next day. In college, I, every time I got my syllabus, I would think, yeah, this time I'll wor start working on stuff ahead of time. But until the deadline came, I never felt a sense of urgency to get things going. But even now, as someone who loves to work ahead, I have a hard time working on something that doesn't have a deadline, even if it's months from now. Memento mori, remembering your death, is meant to shock you out of your complacency. You know that the deadline for getting right with God, repenting for your sin, and so many other important things can come any time. It's easy to coast through life, thinking you'll get around to a relationship with God someday or another, just not today. 
It's easy in a world where we can constantly entertain and distract, distract ourselves to ignore important but inconvenient truths like death. I'll make sure to live my life in obedience to God, but first, another YouTube video. No, today is the day to get right with God, to give him your loyalty, and to learn to love your neighbor. Traditionally, Christians have celebrated Ash Wednesday at the beginning of Lent as a way of practicing memento mori, remembering their death. The gist of it is that we spend time in repentance and prayer to God for his mercy, and then you come up and the pastor will spread ashes on your forehead in the sign of the cross and say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's a powerful reminder of our own mortality, and I highly recommend it, um, since it was hard for some of you to make it this week, so you can do it after the service, in 15 minutes after the service, in Dunkerall. Anyway. Um, second, God is merciful. Even though God takes sin seriously, it is the central refrain of the Old Testament that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and ready to forgive at the slightest hint of repentance. Now, Bible translators are really good at their job, but any time that you translate something into another language, something tends to get lost. In the NIV translation, which is in your pew Bibles, it uses the word rainbow for the sign that God uses for his covenant here. But most other translations, including the ESV, RSV, and King James, all use the simple word bow. Now, in Hebrew, the word that's used here is just the normal word that you would use to call a bow, as in the weapon you use to shoot arrows. Both translations are right, but basically come from different philosophies. The NIV wants to make sure that you know that what the text is referring to in your daily life, which is the rainbows you see when it rains, where the other translations want you to recognize exactly what God is doing in this passage, which is laying down his weapon as a sign that he would not destroy the earth again. Kind of makes sense, too. A rainbow kind of does look a little bit like a bow, like a bow and arrow. So what's happening here is that God is laying down his weapon in order to show the world every time it rains that he's committed to making peace with the world. His purpose is not to destroy the world, but to save it. God takes sin seriously, but he also takes the good of his creation seriously. And this chapter seems to be the beginning of God's commitment to make peace with all of humanity and not merely to let his wrath burn forever. God's rescue plan for the whole world is beginning here. And that's the case even as humans continue to destroy the good world that God created. The rescue plan began as early as the moment after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. God said to the serpent and tempted Eve into sin, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring or seed or descendants, and her offspring or seed or descendants. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, God said that one day, humans would triumph over Satan and over sin. And this word seed or offspring or descendants becomes a key word in Genesis, as the narrator tracks how God's promise unfolds. It begins as early as the birth of Cain in chapter 4, when Eve says, I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord. We're supposed to ask, is this the one who triumphs over sin? So God tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door and you must master it. And we hope that he does, so that the curse would be lifted. But instead, Cain takes his anger out and murders his brother. In this passage, God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and with your seed or offspring or descendants after you. And once again, the promise that one day humanity would triumph over sin and Satan is in view. Now, gods in those days weren't thought to ever make covenants or contracts. They would bind the gods so they couldn't do whatever they want. And 
what does it mean to be a god to an ancient person other than to be able to do whatever you want? Contracts and covenants were supposed to be two-sided anyway. You scratch my back and I scratch yours. What, good, what could a god ever get in return from a human being? But our god is different. He binds himself to promises and commitments because that is how he is related to his world. And his promises always come true because he's faithful to his commitments. This is a commitment which isn't based on human behavior either. God commits himself here to give humanity all the time it needs until a member of its race finally crushes Satan, triumphing over evil. Stipping over a whole lot of story about the seed or offspring of Noah and of Abraham and of Israel, finally, thousands of years later, an offspring or seed of humanity is born in the person of Jesus Christ, who triumphs over sin and Satan, living a perfect sinful life and dying an obedient death. And when he rose from the dead, he began a new kind of humanity, which is truly triumphant over sin and Satan. As Christians, when we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the beginning of this new humanity, which has become ours in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And this new humanity can become our nature, even with the slightest hint of true repentance. By giving even a small part of yourself to God in obedience, you're empowered by God to give another part in another part. He recognizes your weakness and is ready to forgive all your shortcomings. All that matters is that you come home to him. All of this for us adds up to what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has laid down his weapon and has crushed sin and Satan under our feet, so that nothing now stands between us and God. All that matters is that we have faith in him, we repent, and we give up all those things that put distance between us and God. And we do those things that God has called us to do. Seeking justice on earth, loving our neighbor, and caring for the poor. So the math here is easy. Life and sin is costly because God takes sin seriously. But it costs very little to give up sin and instead make Christ's life your own. So that means that obviously you should repent and give over your life to Christ. When you get used to ignoring death and the fact that we're frail human beings... It's easy to think that hard truths like these aren't important. Maybe even to think that mentioning hard truths about repentance and changing your life to conform with God is harmful because we're good just the way we are. It's true, God is merciful and ready to accept us. But his love demands that we cease serving the evil of this world that destroys and enslaves us. Because God's restoring light and the world's destructive darkness cannot coexist. God, out of his great love, must purify you of your sin so you can properly enter his holy presence. Because as frail humans, we cannot properly live without his presence. Half-truths about God's acceptance without a call to change your life can be seriously destructive. We were made to look like Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is a refining fire that must purify all Christians to be more like him. C.S. Lewis said the safest path to hell is the gradual one. It's not the one where you string yourself out on drugs or obvious evils, but the one where you remain complacent, entertaining yourself to death, never trying to be more like Jesus, comfortable with your small and petty sins before death comes to you suddenly. But however you get there, the writer of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. Just like the new creation in Genesis 9, there's another new creation through Christ's resurrection for us. But this one is born out of God's grace and self-giving love shown on the cross. Instead of being destroyed, we can experience the infinite joy 
of God's perfect presence in our lives. And we can experience that through our own interactions with one another. When as a church we gather together, whether through worship services or Bible study or potlucks. Because when the church gathers together, we are assured by Paul in Romans that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. By making peace with one another, living together as a church in harmony, and worshiping our great God, we're showing that we belong to this new humanity created in Christ's resurrection, which has crushed Satan under our feet and now lives triumphant over sin and death. So during a Lent, Take a look at the habits in your life. Are there parts of your life that you haven't handed over to Jesus? If so, commit to giving it up so you can better experience God's presence. And are there things that you know that God is calling you to do, but you just haven't done them yet? Make sure to do them in the next 40 days. Even if Lent causes you to change one small habit or commits you to a new one, it will show that God has continued to crush Satan under your feet so you can experience new life in Christ. Let's pray. Great God, we recognize with fear that you are holy and nothing unclean can come into your presence. We hate our sins, so purify us with whatever means are necessary so we could be conformed to the image of your Son who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen.